Turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 1. We're drawing near to the end of this year. We actually began our study in the book of 1 Peter, first Sunday of this year. We're about halfway through, I suppose. We'll pick that up in a couple of weeks. But I really want to uh, take the next couple of weeks outside of that book and just bring, bring you some things that have been on my heart lately. Today, my mind is going back to sometime in the early 1990s. I was in Bible college. I remember listening to the late preacher, Dr. E.V. Hill. Some of you may remember him, and if you've heard him preach, you probably have, have never forgotten. One of his sermons that he preached has been on my mind lately, so much so that I've gone back in the last number of, year, uh, last number of weeks and listened to it several times. He preached a sermon called, God at His Best. It occurred to me that I'd really love to try to use that as a template for this morning, and talk to you on the subject, God at His best. Over the years, you've seen people at their best. You might think of some musician, some singer, some performer. And you might have heard someone say, wow, that was their best performance. Maybe you, like me, think about some athlete at, at the prime of their career back in 1977, Reggie Jackson became known as, as Mr. October. He was, he was at his best. Muhammad Ali, Usain Bolt, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, they were all at their best at some point in their career. Of course, we know that there was never a moment in time or in eternity in which God was somehow different. There was never a moment in time or eternity in which God changed We might say that God has always been at His best. He never has, and praise the Lord, He never will lose a step. But this morning, what I'd like to do is, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, is I'd like for us to survey the Scriptures. And and if you'll join me, I want to take a bit of a jaunt, a journey through the Scriptures, and see the person and work of our great God and Savior as He is put on display This is something that is a regular consideration of the Bible. The people of God are always being called to consider the excellence of God. I I think of just one verse, Psalm 77. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. This morning what I want to do is go through the Scriptures and survey some of those wonders. This sermon actually started off with 67 points, but I was hoping to get it finished today, so I, I kind of culled it down to just six. This morning, let's take time to survey the Scripture and observe ways in which God has displayed His glory. And I suppose if we're going to start anywhere, we should start at the very beginning. We should start with creation. Genesis chapter 1 is the most reasonable place for us to start this survey. We go back to the very beginning, and I simply cannot imagine 
the, the, the eternal ingenuity, the acumen of God, if you think about this, the acumen of God to create from nothing, not just some things, but everything. There are 10 words that begin our Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These 10 words may be the most significant words that have ever been written. If you think about it, these 10 words discredit every false religion of man, every godless philosophy. These simple 10 words provide the foundation, friends, for everything that we know and everything that we believe. These 10 words begin the account of the origin for everything there is, from the origin of the universe to the origin of time, from the origin of plant and animal life to the origin of human life, from the origin of water to the origin of space, from the origin of our solar system to the solar systems and galaxies beyond ours. These 10 words begin to tell the story of God, the story of man, the story of sin, the story of of the earth, the story of the purpose of life, the story of heaven and hell. These 10 words lay the foundation for marriage and government, for culture, for language and nations. One of the books that I really appreciate for, uh, uh, as a study of the book of Genesis is Henry Morris's The Genesis Record. In that book, he says that these 10 words refute every false religion and the thousands of man-made, man-centered false philosophies. He said these words refute atheism because the universe was created by God. He said these words refute pantheism because God is greater than that which he created. These words refute polytheism because one God created all things. It refutes materialism because matter is not God. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. And it refutes, of course, evolutionism because God created all things. Think about what must have been like, what it must have been like that first day when God created the heavens and the earth. In Job 38, 7, the Bible tells us that the angels sang together with a rousing shout when they, behold, when they beheld God creating the heavens and the earth. It must have indeed been something to behold. Think about the infinite wisdom that God must possess in order just to come up with the idea. The Bible says in Psalm 136, 5, by understanding he made the heavens. He did this with great wisdom and ingenuity. He didn't have any raw material. There was, there was nothing and he created something. He created the raw materials and then he began to bring the heavens and the earth into shape and, and form. He is the very one who created all the things seen and unseen. And he created the laws by which all things seen and unseen abide. And it didn't, just, it didn't just pop into his mind. It wasn't like it occurred to God or that God got an idea. God just knew infinitely, perfectly. He created the heavens. That's to say that he created the things that are above, the stars, 
the sun, the moon, the millions and billions of stars outside of our solar system and the galaxies beyond ours. Friends, we, we've seen the beauty. We've been amazed by the majesty of these kinds of things. He created the earth, just made water, just made dirt. How often have you and I stared off into the distance at the shore of the ocean and thought of the seeming size of the ocean compared to you? I've gone from the mouth of Niagara Falls to the opening of the Grand Canyon. I've gone to the top of the Rocky Mountains from the razorback ledges of the Pacific Islands to the desert spaces of of New Mexico and Arizona. I've seen the ice fields of Alaska and the coastline of California. I've seen the the plains of Africa and, and felt as if I could touch the Milky Way at the tip of South America. And yet all of these things are somehow tainted by sin, yet beautiful nonetheless, amazed. Amazing, and I have not even scratched the surface of all that there is to see of God in his glory. As you think about creation, you, you don't stop there in Genesis 1.1. You move down to Genesis 1.26 when God stated his intention to create man, to make man male and female in his own image. Just think about this. God didn't just all of a sudden, as I said, get an idea. Nothing just popped into his mind. This is simply God's stated intention. Let us make man in our image. And what God intends, God does. So he created man in his own image. He created the outward parts physically, but more than that, God created the inward parts. God created the soul of man, the physical parts. He created intricately designed physical parts through conception. We are created, the Bible says, in the image of God. And at least that means that we are created with the ability to know fellowship, to know oneness, to know communion with God. All of you can say this morning, you can say in your heart this morning, you are a creation of God. He is your creator. You are his creation. And he made you, my friend, he made you after his own image with the ability to fellowship with him. When we think of God at his best, we certainly need to think of creation. But there's more. There's more we got to hurry on if we're to have any kind of survey of, this, of the wonderful works of God. And I suppose if I were to move through the Scriptures, I would next come to the book of Exodus. We come to the second book of the, of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and there we read about a people that God has marked out for His own. And that people found themselves in the land of Egypt. God wants them to be His own. In fact, He wants to bring them into a land which He promised to them from the very outset of their establishment. He wants to fulfill that promise to bring them into this land. And so He requires that they have to leave Egypt, the land of Egypt, and that they should travel on into that land that He had promised that. But there's a problem. The problem is that there was an earthly king the earthly king of Egypt, he said he would not allow it. You see, he thought he could stand in the way of what God had required. Well, if you go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, 
You'll find this. Well, we'll start in verse 19. Exodus 3, verse 19. He says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. He said, I'm doing this to the people of Israel. He said, I'm doing this so that you would know that I am your strong God. I'm going to bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham. But he said, I'm not only going to do this for you, I'm going to do this to to inform the Egyptians of my sovereign and exclusive rule over all things. I'm going to do this and I'm I'm going to execute judgment against all the gods of that land. And so God set out to inflict his judgment on Egypt and their gods with a series of ten plagues. He did this in all the plagues, and those plagues grew in intensity. But in all of that, God was so big and so great and so mighty that he could make a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. He made a distinction between them when they came to the, to the edge of the Red Sea. The Bible says that God divided the Red Sea into two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. Yet he overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 13 for just a moment. And I want to read, beginning in verse 17. This is the story. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds, and when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from there, from here. And they moved out from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hirath between Migdal and the sea. In front of you is that place and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now Linda, look down to verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and, and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and he made the sea dry land, and the waters 
were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Down to verse 29, uh, 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. If you were to say to me, when was God at his best? I'd have to say, that's a pretty amazing thing to command the seawaters to part and to make that dry ground across which his own people could trod. And when everyone, not one was lost, when everyone got through and the Egyptians pursued, he brought those waters back together and brought tremendous judgment on them. You could go through the story of the Exodus. You could talk about God bringing bread from heaven. You could talk about God bringing quail meat on the wind to feed his people. You could talk about God bringing water from the rock to give his people water to drink. You could move on to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16 and read of God's provision for the forgiveness of sin through the day of atonement. Or you could go to Numbers chapter 14, verse 20, and you find amazingly that God pardons the iniquity of his people because of the intercession of Moses. You could go into the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 where God reminds his people that though they had wandered these 40 years in the wilderness, their clothes did not wear out, even their sandals did not wear out on their feet. Throughout all of these things, my friend, we see the wonders of God. And we're only... You know that that's the primary characteristic of God. He is the thrice holy God. He is, he is the unique and transcendent God. He is, he is pure and he is holy. And that's exactly what we see Jesus Christ being. He was like a child, 
But he was unlike all the other children. He was completely without sin. He was completely holy. Can you imagine that? Never sinfully angry, never disobedient, never a wrong attitude, never an out-of-place word. This is speaking of his deity. This is God at his best. God would become man. But not only great in his deity, the angel says he'd be great in his majesty. Great in his kingly majesty. The Bible says that he will be given the throne of his father. The throne of his father. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the messianic promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And of course he would not only rule over the house of Jacob, Israel, but eventually all the nations. And as you go through the scripture, you find the spiritual kingdom mentioned. You find the earthly kingdom mentioned. And you find the eternal kingdom mentioned. And that's when the angel says he's not only going to be great in his deity and great in his, in his majesty, but great in his eternity. The Bible says of his kingdom, there will be no end. Just on into eternity. That's got to be God at his best. Fulfilling a promise that he made centuries before and seeing it through not just to fulfillment, but to ultimate glory. But you go from God at his best in the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ to the life and ministry of Christ. You know that the Bible tells us that this, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the wonderful counselor. He'd be the mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God told Isaiah that the, the government of this kingdom would rest on his shoulders. And then, all of a sudden, one night, one holy night, now more than 2,000 years ago, he burst onto the scene from heavenly eternity to earthly time and space. There he was, born in a way that every other man and woman would be born, conceived though he was of the Holy Spirit. There he was, wrapped in a cloth, even laying in a manger. And it was as if all of heaven showed up that night when the multitude of heavenly hosts pray, were praising God in front of those shepherds uh, in those shepherd fields there in Bethlehem. And even though all of heaven showed up that night, it was a relatively quiet scene on earth because only a few shepherds, only a, his earthly father, only his earthly mother were there to welcome him. Nevertheless, in the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came announcing the kingdom of God. And he called men everywhere to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. I mean, listen, this has got to be God at his best. You see Jesus Christ there walking along the hillside there in Galilee, demonstrating his compassion in his miracles of healing and expressing his authority with his teaching. Think of some of those miracles. Think of some of those works. Just in the book of John alone, John highlights seven. In John chapter two, he turned water into wine. In John chapter four, he sent and healed a boy who was on the verge of death. John chapter five, he healed a man who was lame for nearly 40 years. In John, the first part of John chapter six, he fed tens of thousands out of a few loaves and fish. The end of John chapter 6, he walked on the stormy sea of Galilee. 
John chapter 9, he healed a man who was blind from birth. John chapter 11, he called Lazarus out of the grave. He raised Lazarus to life again. And that's only a small sampling of the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly in all these things, we would say we see God at his best in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more. You move on from the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to consider his crucifixion and resurrection and glorification. Because one day there, in the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, at a place commonly called the Skull, in a small little raised hill, this man, who had compassionately healed, who had authoritatively taught, was taken. And he was nailed on a cross of wood. You and I both know what was happening. God was in Christ giving his own son to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That must be for sure God at his best on that day when the sinless one would give his life for the sinful many. But it goes on. He died that day and his body was placed into a borrowed tomb. Just like every other dead man, woman, boy, and girl. But, as Evie Hill said in his sermon, and I wish my voice were good enough that I could do it just like he did, but you'll have to hear it sometime. He said, we've had tracks leading into graveyards before. Moses' tracks led into a graveyard. Solomon's tracks led into a graveyard. My mama's tracks led into a graveyard. But there were no tracks on the other side. He said, we've buried great teachers from other religions. They're still there. Buddha is still there. Muhammad is still there. Confucius is still there. But early Sunday morning, we have something strange on our hands. Jesus arose declaring, divine power is in my hands. I have the keys to bust death and hell and destruction. And I am alive forevermore. Jesus died for our sins, but he rose For our justification, that must be God at his best. But there's more. For that same Lord Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven. Where as we found last week, he is at the right hand of the Father. Where he is glorified in his role of redeemer, advocate, intercessor. And praise the Lord, soon coming King of kings and Lord of lords. That must be God at his best. But you know, if you were to ask me when God was at his best, I might talk about that grand day when that great, big, glorious, ingenious God of all wisdom and understanding Created the heavens and the earth. I I could talk about that day. I could go back to the day in which God created the physical and the spiritual being called man. I may recall when, when the exclusively sovereign God made the waters of the Red Sea part. Or when the promise keeping king sent his messenger angel Gabriel to a young girl in Galilee. I could even point To that night when the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born and and angels sang. I could say that the, 
the God of grace and wrath, was at his best when his mercy and holiness met together on that place called Golgotha where Jesus Christ hung nailed to a tree. I could point back to the time of the empty tomb when Jesus rose again, conquering sin and the grave in his resurrection. But if, if you today ask me, Joe, when was God at his best? I, I'd remind you again that God never changes. He never improves. He never decreases. But I'd have to tell you that in my mind, God was at his best when that great, big, glorious God, that, that exclusively sovereign God who created everything seen and unseen, that, that God who was faithful to all of his promises and to all of his people down through the ages, when that great, big God of grace and wrath demonstrated his grace and poured out his wrath on his only begotten son on the cross to the point of death, and then he raised up his son and received him at the right hand. That very same big, sovereign, glorious God condescended through an act of the Holy Spirit and took my once sin-deadened heart and made it live such that I believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ And one time, some day, some years ago, I was saved from sin and its penalty. That's when, if you were to ask me, I'd say God was at his best. John W. Peterson put it into words when he wrote, The greatness of the Lord is seen in everything he made, but greater far the work he did. When on him my sin was laid, it took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. And that is when God is at his best. When he saves poor, lost sinners like you and me. God was at his best in 1948. When he saved Laura Fay, whose birthday's coming up this week, in a revival meeting at church. God was at his best in 1996 when, as a 21 year old young lady, God saved Darlene Weir. It was in March 1967 when God saved Roy Allison, and in 2003, he saved John Malloy. God was at his best back in 1990 when, at a time of despair in his life, God saved Bob Fry. God was at his best when he saved Isaac Strasbaugh in 2013. He was at his best when he saved Dale and Pauline Tyson in the spring of 1964. He was at his best in 1994 when he saved Corey Gokenauer. And in 1949, he saved Dorothy Fisher. God was at his best on April 9th, 1972, when he saved Jerry Kreider. And now I wonder for you. If someone were to say to you, when was God at his best? Do you know that the great, big, glorious, gracious God, who is also full of holy wrath, is still saving people today? I wonder, 
Do you know him? Do you know him? Has there been a time in your life when the the Holy Spirit of God so enlivened your heart that you felt as if you must believe the gospel and repent of your sin? I'm, I'm concerned for everyone, but I'm concerned particularly for you young people today. Young people are reaching a moment of decision in your life, and and I've heard some of you are just playing. You're just playing with your life. You're trifling with God. You're holding him at arm's length. I wonder why that is. Why is it that you've not genuinely repented of your sin and turned to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why play with your life? We have God, a God who is not just one time at his best, but all the time at his best. And in a moment, if you will despair of your sin and turn from your sin and look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, son of man, who gave himself on the cross, suffered and bled and died and was buried, and three days later rose again, that same Jesus will save you. And you can say, today, God is at his best. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for taking for taking us through this journey. And there's so many more things that there are to see. I suppose we could be here all day and all night, on into tomorrow and and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, all the way through the end of this year not taking a break, but just moment after moment rehearsing the wonders of our great God. And I pray that somehow today you've encouraged someone's heart to consider your wonders and to walk out of this place a changed person. Those who've come in never having truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that even now you're turning hearts and minds to you. Those of us who've known you now these many years, that you'd strengthen us to turn away from sin to a greater degree, to serve you all out, that you might get praise from our lives. That you would cause us to give thanks to you, O God, to worship you as you're worthy of being worshipped to give praise to Almighty God. She'll continue to work in us until the day that Jesus Christ comes again. For his eternal glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. And together, all God's people said, Amen. If you will, stand together.
Those who are being baptized can go and, and be ready, get ready. Uh, Andrew will lead us. Thanks.